You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. I do want to thank Pastor Nathan for giving that introduction last week. From last week all the way up until we hit Christmas, the big theme is faithfulness in all seasons. That's the big theme. We're going to see that in the book of Lamentations. We're going to see that in the book of Ezra or Esther. And then we're going to see that in the book of Ezra. Okay? And so Lamentations, in this theme of faithfulness in all seasons, we're seeing faithfulness in seasons of sorrow. And so Lamentations, right? A lot of us are like, okay, why are we cracking this book open? Right? This seems like the most depressing book to crack open in one of the most difficult times in human history, right? Or at least in 2020. But I want to remind us for a moment of this reality. The book of Lamentations is a book in the Bible that God inspired by His Holy Spirit to be written for us. So, when we generally as Americans don't like to have a pity party or be down, we always want to be excited or happy about things, It's hard for us to go to passages like this and think that somehow a book of lament can be encouraging. But I want to assure you that even through the sorrow and the pain of the book of Lamentations, there's going to be much rejoicing ahead. So think about it in 2020. Going back to really to March, we were asked as a society, what are the essentials? Who are the essential workers? Who are not the essential workers? Right? And, and then we had to ask, okay, does church fall under that category? Do, you know, does the gym membership we have fall under that category? Everything in life was under the question of what are the essentials. And it forced us to even ask as a church, as a church culture, what are the essentials for the church? Because really, we, all of what happened so far and it continues to happen is completely out of our control. And it's really like a refiner's fire. All the impurities and all kind of the, the prettiness and the glitter and the glamour and the bells and the whistles of church life have really, in a lot of ways, been stripped down. And we've had to ask, what is essential? Think about this. Easter. This was the first time when I've grown up in this city that I can recall that Easter wasn't like the big hype on Sunday morning. And now understand, Easter's exciting, but there wasn't a whole bunch of programs and events and helicopters dropping eggs everywhere and bounce houses and, and, all, and pastel floating all around, right? It wasn't like that. It was literally the resurrection of Jesus alone. And if that didn't excite you, if that didn't get your heart rejoicing, then it really forced you to go, man, what is it about Jesus that I really love anyways? We realized during this time, and we're continuing to realize, we are not, and I'm speaking as capital C, the church, in our society, we are not really as united as we thought we were on social issues and political issues and race issues. We have also seen during this time that there's an insane amount of wounding that is within the church 
that has been ignored for a very long time and is now surfacing in rage and anger. We're also seeing that during this time, some churches literally crumbled apart and shut their doors overnight. I don't know if it was in Louisiana or Alabama. There was a church down there where somebody followed the pastor's likes on social media, followed all the likes of their political positions and whatever, and created essentially a spreadsheet of everything they liked, sent it out to the church, and the church completely disbanded because they realized their pastor swung a certain way politically. The entire church just shut the door. And so what we're realizing is that the churches, churches have been holding together on things other than Christ. And so we're, I would say, and I would argue this point, that our church culture is experiencing a discipline of the Lord. A discipline of the Lord. This is a refining for us. There's an element of suffering that is going on in the church right now. I would say it is a discipline. We're beginning to see the death, a death that is occurring within the church, a time for us now to be filled with grief and sorrow for the church, to see certain things die off and real life to start to emerge within the church. We need to see death to individualism. We're really realizing right now that, man, our individualism is actually plaguing the church quite significantly. We make it so much about us and our personal relationship and we forget that our sins, our brokenness, whatever it is, actually affects the body. We realize that we may, the church may come together on Sunday morning, but we really don't know each other. We really aren't family. We're just a bunch of individuals who come together for a religious gathering. We need to see death to consumerism, death to comfort, death to being fake, death to ignoring wounds, death to ignoring sins, and really a death to ignoring the Bible. We are ignoring the Word of God, spending more time focusing on words that are outside the Word of God, especially on the Internet. It's time for us to see that we are a covenant family. We are a family. We are one. And we need to put certain things to death and we need to bring our sorrows to the Lord with godly lament. And so Lamentations. Lamentations is written by the prophet Jeremiah. It doesn't say explicitly that Jeremiah is the author. It is understood that Jeremiah would be the author of the book of Lamentations. And when you study it, you can't find any other reason for there to be any other author than Jeremiah. And I want you to understand this. Jeremiah is a godly man, a righteous man, a prophet of God. And he is having to endure discipline as well, even though he wasn't the one who sinned. Keep that in mind. The kings of Judah did what was evil. And Pastor Nathan hit on this a little bit last week. But if you remember, there was a time when Israel came out of Egypt. They didn't need a king. They had their God. But for some reason, they wanted to be like the surrounding nations, so they complained to God, we want a king too. And so the prophet uh, Samuel said, God, I don't think we need to give them a king. And God said, just give them a king. And so they raised up a king, and his name was Saul. 
the first king of Israel. And that's when you had the united kingdom together. There was no division, no split. Then after Saul came David. David, and then after David came Solomon and the building of the temple. And then after Solomon, you begin to see sin really affect and plague the kings of Israel. And you begin to see a united kingdom then be divided. You have the, the kingdom to the north and the kingdom to the south. The kingdom to the north is Israel, and the kingdom to the south is Judah. And I mention that to you because at this point in history, the north has already been taken over by the Assyrians, and now the south is being taken over by the Babylonians. And so the kings of the south, you read this in Second Chronicles, kept doing what was evil in the sight of God, Jeremiah lived through these last few uh, days of the last few kings of Judah. He got to see Josiah reform and bring worship back into Israel and to Jerusalem. And it was beautiful. But then he watched the kings after turn away from the Lord. Get into bed with other nations, especially Egypt. And finally, to Israel's demise, be held captive by the Babylonians. And so Jeremiah wrote this lamentation shortly after Babylon came in and captured them in 586 B.C. So a little over 580 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, Judah is taken captive. And so now what we'll see in the book of Lamentations is really this question for Judah. What are the essentials, Judah? What are the essentials? What have you made essential that is not essential? So Lamentations is it's like poetry. It's written like poetry. It's an acrostic. You'll see in chapters 1 and 2 and 4 and 5, there's 22 verses because we have 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 is triple the amount of verses, so 66 verses. So it works <clears throat> kind of like a crescendo up to chapters 1 and 2 leads up to this, this heightened point in chapter 3 where we begin to really see the heart of God and His goodness in the lament. And then it begins to taper down. And so we have five chapters here. We're going to work through one chapter a week. So for the next five weeks, we will be in the book of Lamentations. I want to define two terms before we get into this. Because it's going to be necessary. Because what I don't want to happen is for us to slip into legalism of any sort. So here are the two terms. Discipline and wrath. Discipline and wrath. Let me put it this way. Discipline is a temporary affliction that results in eternal hope and freedom. When we're talking about God disciplining His people, we're talking about Him disciplining people that He loves and that it is temporary. Wrath. Wrath is an eternal holy punishment that results in eternal condemnation, eternal hell. The book of Lamentations is a poetic expression of the discipline of the Lord to His people. Why? Because He doesn't wipe them out. This is only temporary because there's a hope to come. So make sure we understand that, that God because sometimes we interpret discipline for wrath, and if we do that, what we do is we begin, to, we begin to rob Jesus of His work on the cross for us. Jesus took the wrath for us. 
And we as sons and daughters of God, when we disobey, when we sin, and we feel convicted in our hearts, that is discipline. So how does this story, how does this story of Israel play out in the big story of Jesus, excuse me, in the Bible? So Judah is being disciplined, and she's being disciplined for the purpose of her heart being restored back to proper worship. That's the biggest problem. Judah does not listen to God and his word, and they begin to improperly worship. They don't worship him. They end up worshiping other gods and idols. And so really what you begin to see is worship goes away for Judah. But God disciplines them to turn them back to himself. The goal, understand, is not to just fix the city to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple. The brick and mortar didn't sin against God. It was God's people. The aim is the heart of Judah. But here's the goal. The goal is, the heart of Judah, the goal is to show Judah that even if God restores their city and restores the temple, they still have a problem. And so God is going to have to do something about the deeper problem of the heart. And so the Old Testament is like a gigantic arrow pointing to the new. And this is when Jesus comes onto the scene. And he comes onto the scene and he's not disciplined by the Father because he didn't do anything wrong, but instead Jesus takes on the wrath of the Father. So the wrath that Judah deserves for disobeying God for doing what is evil in their own eyes, God pulls it back and He doesn't reserve it for them. He passes over them and He places that wrath rather on Jesus Christ. So that on the death of the cross, His death on the cross, the sins of Judah, the sins of the Old Testament saints, His people would be justified. And so this is what God is teaching. And this is how it points to the big picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 reminds us of that mercy. It says, For the Lord will not cast off forever. We'll get to this in a couple weeks. But though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. The Gospel is God's heart for us sinners. He does not afflict us because He hates us or He despises us or He's an evil God, but because He loves us like a father would discipline a child to help correct them, to keep them on course, if you will, so the Father is disciplining His people. Wrath is no longer reserved for us, church. And so Lamentations reminds us that our, that our disobedience that leads to discipline does not push God away from us. This is where we become legalistic. We think when we mess up that God has now stiff-armed us because we've done wrong, and so now we've got to make it back up. But no, that's not what it is. Discipline doesn't push us away from God. It Rather, it draws us near to Him because He has drawn near to us. And so as we work through this, I want to show you how Jesus enters into 
the afflictions. He enters into the pain. He enters into our failures, our weaknesses, and He does it as a part of Christian growth and our walk. We have bought into the idea that when hard things happen, God is disappointed and He must be gone. But that is not the case. God uses suffering and affliction and pain and weakness and trial to bring us back to Himself. It's essentially saying, you're not strong enough, child. Look to me. Let's be reminded of what we learn from the book of Hebrews. That we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus can sympathize with us. And He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It also says in Hebrews, and for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. It was joy for Jesus to endure the cross and to take on the shame of the world. Your shame, my shame. He took it completely upon Himself. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, Jesus gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to Him for help and mercy. It is a joy for Jesus to bring in sinners and be compassionate towards them, to heal them, to love them, to care for them. We sometimes buy into the idea that when we sin and we screw things up, that He wants nothing to do with us. But what we see in Scripture is that it is a joy for Him to take on your shame and to endure the cross for your sins. Isaiah tells us that Jesus was a man full of sorrow, acquainted with much grief. And so godly sorrow and the, the godly sorrow and grief of Jesus is what led Him to the joy that was set before Him to endure the cross. So understand this. Grief and sorrow have a purpose. They do something. It produces glory. And so the Gospel gives us sorrowful, grieving sinners great joy that is set before us in the person and the work of Christ. So let us be faithful to go to Jesus in our sorrows. And so what I want to do right now, we're going to get into Lamentations 1. I want to read a portion of 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Because by listening to it, and I want you to pay attention to it, you're going to see the fall of Judah and the capture by the Babylonians. And then you'll see how that fits perfectly into Lamentations 1 where Judah is grieving. So let me read these words from 2 Chronicles 36, 11 through 21. <clears throat> Zedekiah, this is the last king of Judah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel, all the officers of the priests 
And the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. So they were giving in to the world. And they polluted the house of the Lord that made that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Now listen to this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So God is persistently pursuing his people because he has compassion for them. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. God pursued them relentlessly to the point where he had no choice but to discipline them. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And then we enter into the book of Lamentations. The first 11 verses. Jeremiah says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. And Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. 
Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Faithfulness in our misery. Faithfulness in our misery. You see how Jeremiah is writing here. He's writing on behalf of his covenant family. And you see every now and then him throwing in his own personal griefs. His own personal lamentation, if you will. But Jeremiah writes this on behalf of the people. The first funeral I preached was one of the most difficult things I have ever done. It's a woman, almost 30 years old, who died in a horrific car accident. And she was with child, and her child passed away as well. This family was fairly new to our church, and I was already given the task of preaching the funeral of a daughter. And we went to go have the funeral, and we went to a, a large uh, church building to have this service. There were hundreds of people there. And the director of this facility, extremely kind, gentle person, but told me this to focus the sermon on celebration and that this person is in a better place now. And so I took that in and I thought for a moment, okay. But then I looked at the family and I looked at the mother and the father. I looked at the siblings and I looked in the eyes of all those around and I knew I couldn't be dishonest. I could not be dishonest to just paint niceties over this horrific tragedy. Jeremiah doesn't come in shift-blaming, I was righteous, you weren't, and just throwing everyone else under the bus. He also doesn't come in just going, you know what, let's think about the positive side of what's going on here. No, he enters into the grief, and this is a eulogy at a funeral. That's what this is. He's real with this. He's honest with this. We have a lonely, captured city. Let that sit in for a minute. Israel came out of the land of Egypt, delivered by God from one of the most oppressive nations on the planet. God brought them out and promised them a land on the other side of the Jordan River. We see in the book of Joshua that they enter into the land and have eventually establish themselves, and at some point, right, the city is, is established as the city of God, Jerusalem, the temple was built in the time of Solomon, and so we see then God's Spirit, His glory come over the temple and dwell among His people, and this place, Jerusalem, was considered really the Mecca, right, the place of worship. This was the place where God would reside with His people. The temple was known as the house of prayer for all the nations. The nations would flood in 
just to be around this God. And now this city that meant so much to a people who were enslaved has now been destroyed, is desolate. They are in misery. And so a people who were once slaves and set free have now gone back into slavery. And you see, when you get to verses 3 and 4, how the people have now been scattered out to the nations. And they don't go out as ambassadors on behalf of their God, telling the nations about this glorious God who delivered them. They're going out to the nations because they are being cast out from the presence of their God. And that road to Jerusalem that was once full of Song and praise and joy is now desolate. There's no rest. You understand, when you open the book of Psalms and you start in Psalm 120, you'll notice a little caption there. It says, Psalm of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent were recited by Jews as they would come back into Jerusalem every year for the festivals. They would recite them. They would sing them as they walked up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, elevation-wise, is the highest place. And so they would ascend to Jerusalem while singing worship to God, exalting Him, extolling Him. And now those songs of praises are gone. It's mourning. There's no rest. It's grief. And so now the nations that used to flood in are coming in no more. And as they grieve, they're showing all their cards. All their sin is on the table. They had opportunity after opportunity to repent of their sin, to turn away from their sin and turn to God, but they refused to do so. And so when you get into verse 9, one of the most explicit verses here in this chapter, you see that their sin is obvious before everybody. And it's repulsive in a sense. Just like David when he sinned. His sin was brought before everybody. So the Lord is disciplining His people saying, we need to bring this stuff to light. And this isn't just a, a spiritual discipline. This is a physical discipline that's going on here. There's physical ram ramifications. When you get to verse 11, you see that desperately. And we're going to see that more and more as we dive further into the book. But the suffering was so great that they began to exchange those treasures of theirs, the money, the wealth, everything that they loved more than God, they began to exchange it now for food. And even getting so desperate at times, exchanging their own children as payment for food. We have to understand that when we dive into Lamentations here, this is a family matter. This is a covenantal family matter. No one gets to claim innocence here. Jeremiah's not doing that. He's not one-upping everybody here saying, I didn't do anything wrong. No, he is in this. He's in the thick of this because it's family. We have to understand as the church that our sin, our brokenness, impacts everything. It impacts everything. We have to understand, like, this is why the New Testament refers to us as the body of Christ. You know physically in your own body, if your leg goes out or your arm goes out, the other parts of your body are affected by it, right? Other parts of the body have to compensate or there's 
Maybe there's pain that shoots through other parts of the body. Sometimes we operate in such a mindset that, oh, it's my own personal sin. If I just keep it to myself, it's not going to affect anyone else. You are lying to yourself. And that's when you begin to see the misery really set in. It's like self-inflicted wounds, Pastor Nathan reminded me this week. That's how we act as the body of Christ. If we do not take our sins and our brokenness to the Lord, it will impact us in a host of ways. Not only spiritually, but I would even say physically. You see this when Paul, I believe in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, talks to the church saying, some of you have gotten sick and some of you have died. And the reason is because they were entering into sinful habits, sinful behaviors, sinful lifestyles, and not repenting of it. And as a result, they reaped the consequences and it affected them even physically, being sick and some of them passing away. And so we have to understand, we need to take responsibility, ownership as a body of people to enter into the pain and the grief and the sorrow and the brokenness together as a family unit. Let me explain it this way. Sometimes when we talk about the good things, like spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible and prayer and, and worship, we often talk about it how it impacts us personally. But we have to understand, that's not just for ourselves. When I read my Bible... It's for the sake, yes, of my own soul, but for the sake of the body, to encourage the saints to build them up. How can you do that unless you are not in the Word, right? And so it's the same with sin. When we hide in sin, we pretend like nothing's going on, and we just kind of play around and dabble with sin, it does affect the body. It plagues us all. And like it or not, let me use this as an example, in our society... Churches have been avoiding racism for a very long time. And so now, we as the church, I'm talking capital C Church, not Redeemer, we have to own that problem. No matter what race you are. Black, white, brown, yellow, it doesn't matter. As followers of Christ, when we see that our church, or that the church has failed in some way, we are not supposed to go, well, they've got to deal with it. No, we need to own responsibility as brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying repent of sin you haven't committed, but what I'm saying is enter into the pain. Enter into the problem. Just like Jeremiah coming along, let's repent. Let's turn. And so this affects family. This affects family. And then what we also learn in Lamentations is that there's a death to something. So this affects the family. There's a death to something. Something, And this death, I would say, we are needing to experience now in our culture is death to individualism, death to hiding problems, death to pretending like our relationship with Jesus is only personal, Death to pretending like we don't have to be responsible for what's actually plaguing the church. It's their business, not mine. No, we need to own this together as the church, capital C Church. 
And the other thing that Lamentations does is it teaches us to whom we lament. When you read this, it's not a lamentation to the people. It's a lamentation to God. So really what God is doing here is He's inviting us to grieve to Him. That's why the book of Lamentations is here. We often kind of like bottle up our sorrow, bottle up our grief, bottle up our pain, and hold it in ourselves, and God is saying, you can't do that, bring it up to me. And so we need to, collectively as a church, we need to grieve some of these things that are happening. We need to, you know, grieve and mourn the loss of what used to be and move forward and bring our lament up to God and see to Jesus that He is the head of the church, the body. That we must lament this misery and our sinfulness to Him in repentance knowing that it impacts His body. If He's the head and we are the body, when we sin, it impacts Him. We must not also just come together as family because we're in this together. We must go to Jesus who took that misery head on. Do you think approaching the cross was just an easy thing? I mean, when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father, he's sweating drops of blood because he is in so much agony and thinking about what he is about to accomplish. Jesus was literally miserable as he was heading to the cross, but he shows us that he has entered that misery. And so if you are dealing with sin, dealing with pain, dealing with suffering, you're miserable, you have to understand that you are not alone on two levels. One, with the Lord, he is with you. And two, with your family. We are here. And so here's what happens when we give our misery and lament to God. He takes our mourning and he turns it into dancing. I love this imagery in the book of Malachi that this, this joyous, this baby calf, right? This baby calf comes leaping out of the stall, dancing around, that this is what our hearts do when we are turned to the Lord in worship. We're just like baby calves. We're just carelessly dancing. We don't care what the world has to think. And this is what Christ does. He takes our mourning and He turns it to laughter. And so now that we know we're in this together, let us, let us enter that deep pain. Let's identify the, the actual hurts and then plead with the Lord for compassion. Verses 12-17. through 17. Let's read that together. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. From on high He sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By His hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For those things I weep. 
My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Faithfulness in our plea for compassion. If you look back at verse 12, essentially what you're seeing here is, is this expression of there's unparalleled afflictions here. Look at my sorrow. Look at my sorrow. If there is sorrow like my sorrow anywhere around, all the passerbys here in Jerusalem think nothing of the damage. Jerusalem is sitting there weeping and mourning and crying and the passerbys are thinking nothing of it. And that ends up cutting deep into the soul. It's it's ultimately torturous to think that others cannot somehow comprehend the pain that is going on. And so the sorrow Jerusalem is feeling is, is complete destruction and overtaking. I mean, they can't do anything about what's going on. And so what discipline does then is it reveals the real loss. It reveals the real loss. Jerusalem is supposed to be God's city with God's temple and God's forever hand of protection. The loss of Jerusalem mixed with starvation, murder, loss of money, loss of land, devastation, it really becomes unparalleled. So their sin and its impact now seems too far gone. Nobody seems to understand, they don't think. And so a yoke of burden is laid upon their necks, it says in 14 and 15. And this yoke of burden is heavy to the point where the enemy is crushing them like a stone, like a winepress crushing grapes. A yoke is that that wooden piece that binds the two animals together as they're working crops as they're pulling a plow, as they're pulling a a cart, a wagon. So the idea is that the enemy has yoked us up with our afflictions and our pain and our suffering, and Jerusalem is holding it all on their own shoulders. God even told Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, 27th chapter, He told Jeremiah to physically wear a yoke around the city to remind Judah that there is going to come a day where they will fall uh, as slaves to the Babylonians. And so here is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Judah is finding the yoke of slavery to be too heavy, too burdensome. The pain is too much, too much to bear. They are completely weak at this point. And guess what? They are getting no sympathy from the Babylonians. Those people who used to be their friends are not their friends anymore. Hey, do you see my pain? Do you see my sorrow? This means nothing to the Babylonians. And so ultimately, Jerusalem's sin, by verse 17, is just seen as repulsive. So as a family... We need to be reminded, for those of us who are in Christ, as a family in Christ, that we carry the yoke of burden together. We carry it together. Even Jeremiah was in on carrying the burden. 
you may be dealing with what you think to be unparalleled, untouchable as far as the pain and the affliction in your own life. And if so, then you have to ask yourself, what makes you think you by yourself have the strength to carry that yoke on your own? To carry that burden on your own? You don't have it. Not even here. Not even with a faithful prophet like Jeremiah do they have in their own strength to carry that yoke on their own, but they have to come together collectively. The church right now is feeling pressure from the world to act and really do something. We're being tempted to do what the world commands in order to find sympathy from the world. And we want to do it because we don't want to suffer. The world around us, I have to remind you, church, is not going to give you sympathy. We must look inward here within the family and then ultimately upward. And so we as the church ought to be the ones who show sympathy, not the world. And often, like, just get on social media, we're all trying to find sympathizers with our positions and what we think about things, and we would love for people in the world to sympathize with us. We want the sinners of the world to see that we can be friends of sinners like Jesus, and so we want them to sympathize with our positions, and we're willing to divide among the church. We've got it flipped backwards. We need to be in the world, not of the world, and seek sympathy from within the body of Christ. We ought to be the ones who show sympathy. Why? Because we have all confessed that we are sinners and are in need of a Savior. The world hates God. The world does not love Jesus. The world loves their sin. The world thinks that they have the upper hand like the Babylonians. This means nothing to me. And we have to remember that because we're in Christ then, we are not, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, even though we're sinners, and therefore we are to emulate Him, imitate Him, and not be ashamed to call one another brothers and sisters, no matter the misery that surrounds us. So we can't turn to the world for comfort. She won't give it. Instead, she'll be ruthless against us. Ruthless. We need to show compassion towards one another. We must be the humans on this planet that are the most unified as the church of the living God. And some of us are finding that we're actually more tied to the world than we are to our own family. And that is something we need to grieve and put to death. We need to die to trying to carry burdens on our own. We can't handle it. We need to die to trying to find comfort from those who don't love Jesus. It's not going to happen. We have to, rather than, turn and lament to Jesus, turn to Him, the One who has endured unparalleled afflictions and then admit to Him that we are miserable and feel utterly alone and full of sorrow. You understand, Jesus took on the sins of the world 
There is no pain and misery in our life that supersedes the misery that Jesus endured. Where were you and I when Jesus was alone on the cross crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died alone. Nobody saved him. But he did it willingly for our sake. So we must turn to him. He can sympathize with us more than anything. So Jesus suffered, uh, Jesus enters into our sufferings. He doesn't run away from it. He's not afraid of it. No matter how bad it is or how miserable it is or how much the enemy seems to have the upper hand, he is not ashamed of us. He enters into it with us. We must turn to Jesus who has said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Right? What Jesus is doing is he's yoking up with sinners. For those of us who have faith in him, he's saying quit trying to carry the burdens of the world on your own. And he comes into the trenches and he yokes up to the point where it almost feels like we don't even have anything on our shoulders. So it's not like he's co-piloting with us. He's actually carrying it and saying, come on, brother. And so we as a church have got to lead one another to being yoked up with Christ and not being yoked up with the world or anything else that is not strong enough or sufficient. We must turn to Jesus who, like Jerusalem, was crushed like grapes under a wine press. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities and He drank the wine of God's wrath all the way down to the dregs, meaning to the bottom of the barrel, meaning there is no wrath left for those who are in Christ. He consumed it all. So there's no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he says, come with me. And so as we turn to Jesus and we find compassion, we find sympathy, our eyes begin to see the truth. So you see, discipline does something. It opens our eyes to truth. And we begin to see that the Lord is right and good. So we see that in verses 18 through 20. Verse 18. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against His word, but hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, For I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. Faithfulness in our confession of sin. The Lord is right. Jerusalem is in sin. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. Here is devastation. Usually, in our, in our circles, in our understanding, when bad things happen, 
we begin to question God and shake our fist at God and become bitter towards God. But that is not how God has designed discipline to be. Rather, what you see here, instead of Jeremiah and Judah shaking their fist at God, they are seeing as, as discipline has removed the dross, removed the impurities, it has surfaced the truth. Oh God, I'm in sin. You are right. And so, it's sad that it took extreme measures like captivity for Judah to wake up. But what we have to understand is we think sin is a light game. We think we can play around with it like it doesn't have really big significant impacts. It blinds us. I mean, we read that from 2 Chronicles. God was pursuing. He was persistent, showing compassion over and over again. Hey, follow my word. Be obedient. And over and over again, they hardened their hearts and they disobeyed him. Even when God was before them, they still turned against him. That's how devastating and blinding sin is to us. And then they turn their eyes properly. They're not going to get any sympathy from the Babylonians. They're not going to get any sympathy from their captors. But they're looking for sympathy from God. God, just see the pain, verse 20. Just see the pain. See the devastation. You see what's going on here. And so Jerusalem wants God to see it and really feel sorry for the devastation. And understand this. God sees it. He knows it. He's aware of it. He's ordained this to happen. So he's not blind to it. He's not overlooking this devastation and he's not saying, goodbye, I'm done with you. There's a plan that will go on. So Scripture shows us that God is more sympathetic. And not only that, He empathizes. Meaning He enters into it and He's going to do something about it. See, religion, world religion tells us we messed up so we need to make correction and make it right. But the Gospel says you've messed up, you can't make correction, you can't make it right, I have to do this on your behalf. And that's the beauty of Jesus coming to be among sinners. Let's think about this as a family. In the last six months, if, if anything has been learned in the last six months, it is this, that we are seeing that the Lord is right and we are wrong. The Lord is right and we are wrong. I mean, look at things like COVID and masks and the race issue and how's, how the, all of those things caused instant tension and bitterness among the church. It reveals to us that we were not clinging to the Word of God, but clinging to something else. How quickly we deserted the Gospel of Jesus because of social matters. And understand, I'm not saying you ignore the social matters, but the social matters don't make up your identity. Christ is your identity. Look how quickly the church ran to worldly philosophies rather than the Word of God. And when we are fighting over words that are not even words that God has written down in the pages of Scripture, and we are allowing those words outside the Bible to either unite us or divide us. 
and many churches are take, being taken captive by these philosophies. And you're seeing now that they were never really grounded in Christ from the beginning. But look, in these last six months, how God's Word is constant. God never got on Facebook and freaked out, right? He never posted any worries. He's not anxious. He's not sweating bullets about any of this. He's like, y'all calm down now? Hey, the Bible, it's right here. It's constant. It's true. It's relevant always. And so we need to confess as a family that the Lord's words are the right words, are the true words, are the words that give our souls life and hope. Pastor Nathan mentioned this from Ecclesiastes. It's the very word of God that keeps our heart pounding, our lungs filling with air, allowing us to breathe. It's that ever-present grace among us. It is God's word that sustains us. It's God's word that was in the garden that Adam and Eve rebelled against. And so we are in a war with words, if you will, believing either the word of God or the words of man or the words of the enemy. But we need to ground ourselves solidly on Scripture alone. And so we need to see a death. A death to selfish motives, a death to desires, a death to worldly philosophies. We need to die to thinking that we're the ones who are in the right, like our words are what matters most. If you want to see how wrong you are, go back and look at your social media posts for the last six months, your text messages, every, every like emotion that you expressed online and measure it to Scripture and see if, if you're right. I thought of that and I was like, I'm not going to do that. But it'll reveal the truth. We are so naive to think that we've got it. And we quickly forget God and what He's said and what He's already done. We need to lament. And this is an important lesson for us. Suffering ultimately brings clarity. It puts things into focus, into perspective. We need to be able to clearly see the devastation and clearly bring it to the Lord. It doesn't help us to grow or to, be, to find healing or to repent of ambiguous things. But here, Jerusalem clearly knows the devastation, clearly knows their sin, clearly knows the problem, and now, because they can clearly see it, they have a clear path forward and repentance. And this is what we must have as a church. We operate by that saying that we cannot repent of sins that we don't know we've committed. So discipline reveals our sin, and then we can either turn to the Lord in bitterness, or we can be like Judah and turn to the Lord in godly confession. I think that's what we need to do as a church. Turn to Him in godly confession. Oh, I see what you've been doing in my life. I see how I've sinned in this way. I see how I've made much of myself rather than you in these last six months or whatever it is. And we need to come together as a family and confess His goodness. And I want to give you permission to confess in a real, genuine, raw kind of way. We often 
give generic confessions or generic prayer requests or generic prayers up to the Lord, but there's nothing generic about this. This is real. This is raw. This is honest. And I'll say being honest or real, in my opinion, is like detoxing the soul. That's what it is. Because it forces you to get the truth out. It forces you to bring darkness to light. Because as Ephesians says, when darkness comes to light, it becomes what? Visible. It becomes light. When we're honest, we get the truth out and we're not leaving these emotions, we're not leaving the pain deep inside that would ultimately fester and grow into bitterness and anger and rage. But instead, we let it go. We give it to God and it frees us. It's a detoxing of the soul. And I'll tell you, when I went on sabbatical almost two years ago, had I not been able to just confess to you guys what was going on in my soul and I was real and I was honest with you, I don't know if I'd be in ministry right now. Because I know all that hurt and that pain that was residing in my soul would have just resulted in something catastrophic. But the Lord used you by His grace to bring healing even to, into my own life. Hebrews says, that Jesus knows how to sympathize. And this ought to be our great confession, that He's the sympathizer, that we cry up to Him for sympathy. We confess to Jesus that He knows the pain. We know You know the pain. He's not so far off. He knows it. He's lived it. He's been there. And He's not ignoring it. We confess up to Him, Jesus, You are right. You are the Word made flesh. You matter. Your words matter. We do that and we feel the weight of the world really fall off of our shoulders. The yoke and the bondage of slavery to sin just lifts because yoked up with us is our Savior, Jesus. So the church may be under some discipline right now, but Jesus is not ashamed of her. He's not ashamed of us. He loves the church. He's not going to leave the church. He will come and be rejected by the world for the sake of the church. He will bring healing to the church even in the midst of hard times. And so as we, as we look at ourselves and we see where we have wronged the Lord, let us then be faithful in how we seek the justice of the Lord. Verses 21 and 22. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because all of my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Let us be faithful in our appeal for justice. Babylon is rejoicing. <laughs> they have the upper hand here. They're rejoicing in the afflictions of Jerusalem, of Judah. And so what is, what is the response? God, punish the Babylonians. Isn't that unique? God uses the Babylonians to discipline Judah, and at the same time, God is also going to one day punish the Babylonians for their sin against Judah. 
Only God in his, in his infinite wisdom can do that. And so here, in, this, in these final verses, it can seem hypocritical for Jerusalem to want Babylon punished. Well, you're the one who sinned. You got yourself in this problem. But here's the distinction. The distinction is this, that Jerusalem recognizes their sin and is turning to the Lord in repentance, whereas the Babylonians are content with defiling the name of the Lord and defiling His people. That's the distinction. God is going to, 70 years from this point, relieve His people from the Babylonians. Jerusalem will be built back up. The temple will be built back up again. God will restore His people back to the city. The Babylonians will feel the wrath of God. But for now, this capture is pruning Jerusalem, refining them, teaching them, turning them back to God. So here's the truth. God punishing Babylon will not offer the ultimate reprieve that Jerusalem actually needs. The problem for Jerusalem is not with Babylon per se, but with a mighty and holy God. The problem is we have sinners coming face to face with a holy, righteous God. And so even when God removes Babylon, the problem is not resolved. You still have sinners. You still have hearts that need to be dealt with. Sin that ultimately needs to be punished. Something needs to be clear. Yes, we are saved. Yes, we still sin this side of heaven, though we try not to. But what distinguishes us from the world is our love for Jesus and our conviction of sin. Those are two different words. Conviction and condemnation. Conviction leads to hope. It's to promise, to freedom. The Spirit convicts us of sin, saying, Son, daughter, don't sin against your God. Turn to Jesus. Condemnation leads to guilt, to shame, to a weighing down, never to turn back to Jesus. But that all of your sin, all of your shame is weighed upon your shoulders. So for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have the gift of the Spirit who convicts us of sin. But the world, like Babylon, is not convicted. So we may find ourselves in devastating situations because of how sinful we have become, but we have to understand that the devastation and the discipline of the Lord is designed not to make us just miserable, but to make us see that the Lord is right and we are not. And we desperately need Him. So quickly we become self-sufficient. But we need the Lord. And when we recognize the Lord is right, it is perfectly right for us to quickly become jealous for the Lord and to hate sin, to hate evil. It's okay, even in the midst of discipline, to call a lost world to repentance. It's okay. We, we have to get over the mindset that before we can call others to repentance, or to follow the Lord, that we got to get ourselves right first. You don't see that here. In the midst of discipline, they're already asking God to enact a righteous judgment. 
the world is going to hold or try to hold your sin against you forever. They're going to remind you of it around every possible corner. And this is what the enemy is going to do. And this is why the church is so important because we remind each other of not of condemnation, but grace and freedom. But the world will continue to remind us of our sin. And we have to say to one another, you are no longer a slave, but you are free. And so the church comes around when you're groaning and faint and yokes up with you as we yoke up with Christ seeking the justice of the Lord. So the death we must die is to a form of eternal condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We think that we are somehow condemned every time we mess up, every time we sin, that God has somehow left us, He has forsaken us. But that goes against the very Word of God. He has promised He will never leave us nor forsake us. And He does not condemn us when we sin, but He corrects us. He disciplines us. And so we must die to that wrong way of thinking and believing. We have to remember, death does not win. Death will die one day. Jesus overcame the grave and now we are united with Him in His life and resurrection. So we need to turn up to Jesus and confess that we have lost sight of Him. We've lost sight of Him and ultimately trying to take on and bear the eternal wrath ourselves. But we need to confess to Him. No, and understand and give praise to Him for Him taking on the wrath that was reserved for us on the cross. He is our substitute. So all your lust, all your greed, all of your looking at pornography, all of your anger, everything that you do that is sinful, Jesus became that on the cross. And that's why there's no more condemnation for us. But there's freedom. And so we need to turn up to Jesus and beg for help and pray for our enemies. Pray for our enemies that they would know the Lord. We need to turn up to Jesus and confess that we struggle to trust the justice that will be perfectly appeased on Judgment Day. We, we struggle to believe that Jesus actually satisfied the payment for our sins on the cross. And we need to turn up and confess to Him that we trust and believe that He has fully satisfied the payment for us. And so we need to take full assurance of the cross because listen to what Revelation 18 says. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For in a single hour she has been laid to waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The rejoicing Babylon has over Jerusalem and Judah is going to be flipped on its head in eternity when the saints of God are going to rejoice over Babylon who has been completely destroyed and we will be completely justified and perfectly in the presence of Christ forever. So Babylon laughs and scoffs now but the time will come. So we need to lament and turn to Jesus and confess not simply just for the removal of the present afflictions and suffering, 
Not thinking that just by taking away the pain or, or taking away of the, the memory of the, the sinful thing that I did or you did will somehow give us the reprieve, but remembering the work of Christ is what gives us the ultimate reprieve. Removing Babylon doesn't take away the actual problem with Jerusalem. Taking away your addiction to pornography or your addiction to whatever it is doesn't take away the problem. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. He is the one who offers reprieve. He is the one who offers rest. He is the one who offers peace for the soul. So it's not about the pains being removed, but it's about going to Him amidst the pain and being faithful to Him. So here's the hope before us. It was the compassion and the kindness of the Lord that took on the misery of the cross so that sinners like you and me would be justified and set free from our sins. And because He has set us free, we can confess His goodness, His Word with confidence, trusting that His Word brings great peace and grace into our lives. And as we live that out here in the church, we can rest assured that the world will see it and wonder at how it's possible that a gathering of people can find so much joy, so much hope, so much peace, while there is so much sorrow in the world. Faithfulness in seasons of sorrow is worth the pain. It's worth the fight. It's worth the struggle. Let's pursue faithfulness, joining one another in the sorrows and the misery of life, pleading together to the Lord for His compassion, confessing our sin to God and to one another, extending forgiveness and grace, while at the same time making an appeal for the justice and the mercy of God. And as we begin to do this, we will have a front row seat to watch as the grace and peace of Christ bring great healing and joy to us all.